Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Today I will just talk about certain important aspects of Edward's reign uh, as a way of finishing off our kind of survey of post-Norman, uh, post-conquest uh, kings as a kind of focus or whatever. Uh, so, Edward I, son of Henry III, our previous subject, son of John, our previous one before that. Edward was king of England from 1272 until his death in 1307. He was the first English king to have, or the first uh, post-1066 king of England, I should say, uh, to have a properly English or Anglo-Saxon name. All the other guys had been Henrys and Williams and so on. These are all uh, continental and Norman in origin. Um, but Henry III chose to name his son uh, Ed Edward, and he had an Edmund as well, I think, as we said on um, uh, Tuesday. This is partly at least because Henry had been, uh, he was very serious in his devotion to the cult of uh, Edward the Confessor. Can anyone remember? I hope you can. There's only two of you here. Can anyone remember who Edward the Confessor was? We've mentioned him in quite an important context about six weeks ago. Yes, he was the king who, whose the succession after whom was disputed. So he was valid king. William claimed that Edward had made him his heir, and Harold, who ruled for less than a year, claimed that Edward had made him his heir. And uh, right about 1160, so in the middle of the 12th century, Edward the Confessor was canonized, turned into a saint by uh, the church. So he was not just a political figure, but also a religious figure. And Henry was very interested in the cult of um, Edward the uh, Confessor. So uh, partly as a result of that, I presume, he named his son uh, Edward. It's also interesting because the choice of names, and I've mentioned this more than once before, tells us things not about the people, but about their parents usually. And here we see a French guy, effectively Henry III, but his power more and more focused in England, of course, uh, choosing an English name for one of his sons. So we might be able to suggest a growing kind of focus on uh, the English side of their inheritance. Edward had various nicknames, and I think maybe our friend Jengis in his presentation mentioned some of these. He was known as long shanks, which refers to long legs or long part of the leg, because for his age, for his time, I should say, he was quite tall. He was about, 
I don't know how that much it is in meters, but he was over six feet tall, which uh, for uh, the uh, 12th, 13th centuries was quite tall. So he was a tall figure and also known as the Hammer of the Scots later on. He gets this name obviously because of his actions in Scotland. Okay, I'll say a little bit about his uh, activities before he becomes king, but we don't need to go into that in too much detail. Main interesting point is that during the Barons' Revolt, which neither of you heard much about, but we discussed it uh, on Tuesday, uh, when um, many of the leading barons of uh, England revolted against Henry III, and they were under the leadership primarily of this guy called Simon de Montfort, uh, during that period, Edward, for a while, allied himself with the Baron's cause. Come in, come in. So he actually supported the Barons to some extent at the early stages of their revolt against his father Henry. But later on, he comes over to his father's side and in fact wins the great victory at the Battle of Evesham where Simon de Montfort is actually uh, killed. And from that point onwards, he's a supporter of his father. And we've seen cases before of English princes often fighting against or arguing with their fathers. He wasn't the first one to do that, but for whatever reason, uh, pragmatic factors, uh, he eventually focuses on his father. From 1271 to 2, Edward was on crusade, the Ninth Crusade, as it's usually called, Okay, he was involved with that, uh, and it was while he was actually on his way back from that crusade that he heard the news that his father had died. Um, but he felt obviously in a fairly uh, strong position, so he didn't bother to rush back. He didn't have to rush back and prevent someone else uh, from becoming king. He was declared king in his absence, and he takes quite a long time to get back. He doesn't reach England, in fact, until August 1274, when he actually uh, comes back and is crowned king at that point. Okay, so there's a kind of year and a half or so when he's actually not in the country, but he's kind of de facto king, uh, but he's not actually ruling. And that tells us how secure he felt, even at the start of his reign, even not so long after the troubles of his father's time. Okay, Edward is interesting for a number of reasons. He made a series of administrative reforms, okay, which include the use of statutes I'll talk about, and also the development of a, an idea of parliament. Okay, so he changed partly the way that he ruled as king and other aspects of rulership. The other main topic I'll talk about today is the conquest of Wales, okay, uh, the final defeat of any independent Welsh uh, rule and the incorporation of uh, a large part of Wales into England, in effect. And lastly, as we heard last week in Genghis's presentation, okay, what's sometimes called the Great Cause, which is his involvement in the Scottish succession and then his attempts to impose his own overlordship over Scotland and so on. We won't talk about that today because we've heard about that one already in the presentation. Okay, so as I said, trying to be quick today, uh, I'll talk about Edward as administrator and as king, in a sense, and then Edward as military leader and his dealings with the Welsh. And I've prepared, just to help us a little bit, I've got some maps up and I've also put 
this diagram to put some of the um, uh, points into context. Okay, more or less as soon as he got back, as soon as he was back in England and therefore actively ruling as opposed to absent, uh, Edward was very eager to sort out a number of issues, particularly in the way that his kingdom was organized, administered, and particularly in the way that his power as king uh, was based. So, he was concerned to some extent with corruption, which we mentioned on Tuesday with reference to uh, the provisions of Oxford and so on, okay, the issue of royal officers abusing their power and so on, and people getting what they shouldn't have. But perhaps more importantly for him, he was concerned with reasserting royal power and rights. He felt that during his father's reign, and perhaps even earlier, uh, the position of the king uh, had been um, diminished by the encroaching, extending powers of the barons and others, uh, de deliberately and to some extent perhaps through corruption. And so he was very keen to establish what is this extent of my power, what are my lands, what are my rights, and so on as king. Not for me personally, but as king in that sense. So almost immediately he establishes an inquest or commission or inquiry to find out who's got what land, who's got what rights, what are mine, and so on. Very similar in a sense, but a bit different to the Doomsday Survey, which we had seen uh, 200 years earlier with William the Conqueror. And all this information is then brought together and eventually put uh, together into, along with some other documents a bit later, into a series of rolls rolled up documents called the hundred rolls because they work down to the level of the hundred. Anyone remember what a hundred is? It's not one more than 99. Uh, well, it is, but what is a hundred in terms of medieval English politics organization? Anything? No. We've mentioned it again probably about halfway through the semester or something. You have the kingdom. The kingdom is divided into counties or shires. Okay, which you still have uh, today. And then the shires are divided up into smaller units, which are called hundreds in most of England. Okay, so even at the level of very small localities, they were interested in finding out what the lands, what the rights of individuals, obviously including the king, were as well. Okay, and these, this inquest was gathered together in this way. So he's trying to find out what's the deal. Okay, we've had a lot of trouble, and I want to find out what's my power, what other people's power is, what have I lost, and then therefore how can I get that back as king. So a very important uh, initiative straight away. And this is the basis for a number of claims that he kind of gradually makes, in a sense. And he's concerned, to some extent, with real powers, with getting land back, or whatever, but also with the principle that the king rules, the king can claim things. And these are slightly different, okay? If we can see in our heads, there is a principle of, I'm the boss, and there's also the principle that this is mine and they're a bit different. Okay? One is just asserting that everyone should do what I say, and the other one is actually getting hold of things. And we'll see the difference between these in some of his work. Okay, another important development during his reign, but has antecedents, um, but something that he develops more, is royal government 
increasingly through what we call statutes. Okay? Uh, things called statutes, statuta, uh, had been used and existed earlier, but it's particularly under Edward that they become a very regular feature of the way that uh, the king rules. Anyone know what a statute is or was? Any ideas? At a simplest level, it's just written law. It's saying a law, a decision, in this case made by the king in some way, uh, is written down and then sent out. Okay. So if I said now, you must all give me four essays uh, next week, that's kind of informal oral law in a sense. Okay. But if it's written down on the syllabus, then it's issued formally, properly, everyone's got a copy and that's statutory law. Okay. In a sense, we come to an agreement with the professor? Or you, well, no, no, it's not a matter necessarily about agreement. There may not be an agreement. It may just be all coming from the king. But how do I make my decisions known? Okay? I organize them carefully with written laws, with people advising me, in a sense, and then sending that out to make sure everyone knows. As opposed to just saying this and that, five essays next week, blah, 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 or something. Okay? So Edward decided to rule in a sense, more directly and more clearly, okay, by making important decisions and then putting them together into fixed documents and having many copies sent out, and these are statutes. So it's formal and it's written and it's kind of announced. And they can be decisions he makes on very small issues or very big issues, okay, and he can make them with his council, his close band of advisors who give him some advice and he finally makes a decision and then they write it all out. Or it can be the king when he is in parliament and we'll say more about that in a couple of minutes. Okay? So the king and his council or the king in parliament with a broader group of people uh, with him in a sense. But it's the king's decision which is then formally sent out to other people. And as I said, we have seen statutes before, but it's particularly during his reign that he rules more and more, or on, on certain big issues, he issues, he sends out statutes as a way of, of making sure everyone knows what's going on, in a sense. And it's the basis for later medieval government, in a way. Okay, now let's look at Parliament. Now, where have we come across that word so far in particular? Where did the word parliament come up recently? Now, those of you who were here, I can't remember who was here on Tuesday now, um, but uh, the concept of parliament, which just ultimately base, is based on the word in French for talking, for speaking, people conversing in a sense, okay? Um, but it was used during the Baron's Revolt period, okay? And they created they, or they wanted to create a body of people, representative body in a way, but that's perhaps taking it too far, but a body of people who were independent of the king, were controlled by this group of select people who were uh, providing a check or a balance to the king, and were expected to meet on a very regular basis every three years, and then other times when the king wanted uh, to discuss issues and decide on issues with the king. Okay. Edward's parliament, the parliaments that we see developing during the reign of Edward I, however, 
uh, have got more or less the same name and some similarities, but they're very different, okay? They are the king's parliament. This is not a bunch of people who are independent and more or less telling me what to do and making sure I'm not a bad guy. These are people who I am calling to help me in some situations, okay? So it's my parliament. It's not something which is controlling me. It's more and more controlled by me, okay? So I can suggest when there's a parliament. If I decide I need taxes or if there's a problem uh, with France or something, I'll say, okay, I need to have some advice. Let's call a parliament and I'll choose who can come. So it's my decision. It's not a fixed time when parliament must meet. There's no law controlling it apart from my decision and my need, in a sense. And I can choose different groups of people according to our needs. The basis of the parliament could be the king's council, the small group of very important uh, figures uh, in government primarily who are close to the king. But in addition, we can call different people. For example, the great magnates, the great lords of the land, the barons and bishops, and perhaps abbots and so on, they can be called uh, to Parliament or can be summoned to Parliament, summons to Parliament, particularly the King if he needs to discuss great affairs of state, foreign policy, great decisions affecting the country or something like that, okay, and he'll call the big lords, lay lords, secular lords and ecclesiastical lords to advise him on these issues, to discuss these problems. On other occasions, he might also call knights from the shires, the important guys who lived in the localities, okay, and also people called burgesses. Have we come across that word? Does anyone know what a, who a burgess was? Sorry? Well, what kind of people? They're definitely people, but they have a specific, where do they? In towns, okay, borough, the English word borough for town, you see, is essentially the same, burg, burg there, okay. So they are people who live in towns and have certain rights and liberties and certain kinds of tenure, certain kinds of land holding and so on, characteristic of these boroughs, of these towns. So certain people could be called from the towns, from the boroughs, uh, to discuss primarily, in these cases, issues of tax subsidy, as they're sometimes called. Okay? The king will be getting most of the money from these people, or from their people they represent or they reflect, and so if you wanted aid or subsidy, whatever we call it, okay, he might uh, on occasion therefore uh, ask the knights and burgesses to come along and give their agreement. They're not actually coming to say yes or no, it's not quite that strong yet. Later on we get the idea of consent, that they can come and say, you can have this tax, or maybe not. For him it's more a matter of, if he's going to get the tax, they have to come along and kind of sort it out. But I don't think at this point we're talking about actually getting some kind of a, an agreement from them. They don't have quite that amount of power, okay? Which is quite an important point to make. And these parliaments were not legislative in their own right. They were not making laws in their own way and controlling things. Okay? Certain statutes would then be agreed and discussed in parliament, but they are the king's decisions and the king's ideas. Okay? Only later on do we get 
uh, English parliaments making law themselves, in a sense, and deciding things and so on. Okay. So, once again, we have to be careful about looking at any aspect of this early period as kind of part of the road towards democracy. Edward wasn't kind of thinking, well, we're being a little bit more democratic and we've got things called parliaments and later on they're going to have something which is far more democratic called a parliament, so I'm just leading up to that. For him, what he was doing was the final thing. This was the right way to behave and rule and parliament had that function for him. Okay, so we have to be careful to kind of not put the past into a continuum from our perspective, from his perspective, from the perspective of the late 13th century. This is how the king should rule. He wasn't on the way to something better or whatever, it's this is how he wanted to be. Okay, and I'll talk briefly about one kind of big issue which emerged during his reign which relates to royal powers and so on and it goes back to something we've mentioned before as well. And this is to do with, to some extent, landholding or rights or sometimes the word franchise is used. Okay. So who has the right to have certain powers, particularly powers over land? Okay. So let's imagine, I know, this table here uh, is a piece of land which Uzge uh, has control over at the moment. Okay. We're going to discuss how Edward would have approached that uh, as an issue. Now we saw in Henry III's reign the use of quo warranto, okay, which means by what or which warrant or guarantee. So Uzge says, that's my land, and I say, how do we know that? How can you prove it? By what warrant, by what guarantee, by what proof can you show me that this is your land and not mine, the king's land? Okay, and Henry had asserted, Henry III had asserted his independence, as we saw in 1227, by making a claim that people had to show by what warrant, by what proof, uh, rights and lands were theirs, because he was challenging what had been going on while he had been a minor and earlier on. And Edward essentially does the same kind of thing. He wants people to substantiate their land because he thinks a lot of powers and rights and lands have been taken away from the position of the king during the previous 50 years or so. So, in 1278, he issues the Statute of Gloucester. And as a kind of appendix to that, in addition to the main subjects there, there is a statement that all landowners, all people claiming rights, franchises, whatever, okay, must produce some evidence that their rights, their powers, their land, whatever it is, is theirs. Okay? Particularly if they claim it's come from the king. They have to show some kind of a charter. Remember we looked at charters a few weeks ago where people give something to someone else and then there's all these complicated ways to, to show and prove these things. Okay? And if you can't prove it's yours, if you can't produce some kind of documentary proof, then I'm afraid it comes back to the king because ultimately everything must come from the king. Okay? Now, this might seem quite nice in theory, but a lot of aristocratic and noble landowning families had been controlling their lands since 
the end of the 11th century, since the uh, Norman invasion, or not long afterwards. And in many cases, it probably was their land, but they just didn't have the charters to prove it for one reason or another. They'd been lost, they hadn't been given with a charter or something like that. And they claimed that this was their right, their power, their land, because they were the, in English we say, the long use or long user. We've just been using, it's been our land for a long time. We've had it all that time, there's no doubt about that. And therefore it still is ours but we can't actually prove it with a document. So there was a bit of a reaction to what Edward was trying to do. Okay? This is unfair. You're taking Özge's land, but it's been her and her ancestors' land for two centuries. You can't just take it away. That's unfair, or whatever. So there was a certain debate about this. And after over a decade, in 1290, okay, we get the statute of Quo Warranto, which more or less reasserts the royal position that people have to produce some kind of um, proof. But in cases where they are claiming to have had this for a long time, for long use, then if they go to court and the court says, fair enough, we are sitting and listening to what Erzge and her family are saying, and we agree that this is her land, even though she doesn't have proof, then we will issue a royal a document, letters, patent, or whatever, that says it's hers, and then you can keep it. And most people were able to get round this problem that way. So the king didn't actually get a lot of extra land and rights from this, but at least he made the principle, this is what I was saying before, he made the principle, and everyone had to accept it, that ultimately it could be his if you couldn't prove it. So he was asserting his authority, even if he wasn't actually getting a lot of land, and so on. Okay, so that's some of the main issues in terms of kind of administration and so on, which we can see. And he has a very successful and relatively long reign, okay, and obviously growing up during uh, the later part of his father's reign uh, had been quite an influence on him in the same way that his father had been influenced by what went on before. Now, I'll finish off, and we may finish by 4.30 today, by looking at his relationship with Wales. Let's see what I've got here first. Okay, here is a map which we can't see all of it. Let me just push this down a bit here like this. Okay, uh, showing the situation before Edward's reign, the situation in Wales, just to kind of remind ourselves what had been going on since the Norman Conquest. Primarily, we have, as you can see in this map, two areas that we're concerned with, two big colours. England is here, okay. Uh, this is also England, but it's kind of a, what we call it's a, a slightly separate entity within England. This is directly ruled by the king. This is ruled by the king on behalf or by the uh, Earl of Chester, Palatine uh, County. The green is, as was in 1234, it was here, independent Wales. This is ruled by... Welsh, well, they had earlier been called kings, but now they're primarily called princes, okay? And most importantly is the old kingdom of Gwynedd, okay? That's the big important one up there in the north and west, okay? And also earlier we'd seen the importance of Dehebarth down here, and then we had the old kingdom of Powys, which has got various rulers at this point. 
Here we have what's called Pembrokeshire, which is controlled by the Clare family. And we have Glamorgan, the lordship of Glamorgan, and then we move up through the borderland. This is the, this is the march of Wales, which is areas which were no longer ruled by the Welsh kings or princes, controlled by English or Anglo-Norman uh, descended lords who had come in from England and conquered these areas and made them their own region. And technically, therefore, they're not England and they're not ruled by the Welsh. They're kind of almost independent, okay? And often you get troubles with the march. The rebels can go there and the King of England can't reach them directly and so on. Now, during the period uh, before Edward, the borders are fluctuating to some extent, okay? Particularly the kings, the rulers in Gwynedd, uh, exploiting weaknesses in England and conquering more lands and then at other times the English push them back okay so uh, these green areas fluctuating particularly as I say the region of Gwynedd but that's the situation um, uh, in the early half of the 13th century let's do a little bit of background stuff now um, maybe I'll shift maps we won't look at that one yet. During the Barons' Revolt, during the period when Henry III was in uh, a lot of trouble, okay, and briefly captured and so on, uh, the most important Welsh ruler, Llewellyn Ap Griffith, and here's a, let's see if you can all pronounce a Welsh sound, double L, which looks very odd to you, I'm sure, two L's together, in Welsh is the sound okay and also this double D here is just okay this is my name David but in Welsh David okay but this is the one that people find that sound okay Llewellyn the last Llewellyn Ap Griffith who was the prince ruler of Gwynedd uh, by this time he for a while was supporting Simon de Montfort okay he took the chance they exploited the problems in England and was supporting the rebels and in 1265 they came to an agreement called the Treaty of Pipton between Llewellyn and Simon and this is at the point when um, Simon de Montfort seems to be doing quite well in the Civil War and he basically, they basically say, we will recognise you, Llewellyn, not just as Prince of Gwynedd or something, but as Prince of all of Wales. You are the most important ruler in Wales. And this is what the rulers of Gwynedd had been trying to get for a long time, but kind of failing for various reasons. So all the other rulers will have to recognise you as their overlord. And what you have to do is then just pay homage to the King of England. Okay. However, the civil war takes a different turn. Simon de Montfort is killed and so on. Henry and Prince Edward are ultimately victorious. But there are still some problems, still difficulties and rebels around. So in 1267, Llewellyn comes to a very similar agreement called the Treaty of Montgomery with King Henry. Okay? And that's what we've got here. This is the representation of here. He can be called Prince of Wales. He will be recognised as the most important Prince of Wales. All the other rulers 
the other areas that are outside his direct control, okay, that are Welsh, must recognise him as overlord, okay, must accept him as their overlord, in a sense. So it's giving a lot of power to Llewellyn. In return, as they agreed earlier, he must make homage, he must recognise the King of England as his overlord, and he must pay a regular tribute or tax to England every year. He must pay a lot of money for this right. Okay. And this, is quite a, this gives Llewellyn quite a strong position. Okay. Though obviously these guys, the rulers in Powys in particular and so on, are not going to be too happy about that. They're not going to be too happy about him being more powerful, but he was happy with that. So that's the situation as it stands uh, okay, at the end of Henry's reign. So when Edward comes into power, this is the situation. This guy is quite powerful in Wales. However, things begin to break down. Things, troubles begin to emerge. Okay. Some of the marcher lords had lost some lands to um, Llewellyn, and they wanted to get those lands back. Okay, so there was some pressure to reclaim what they thought was their lands, that the Welsh guy shouldn't have it. And also, we begin to see trouble between Llewellyn and his brother David. David wants to be Prince of Gwynedd, Prince of Wales himself. He doesn't want his brother in that position. So there is a, a disagreement between them. And David makes a plan with the ruler of Powys when Winwin, Griffith, to assassinate kill Llewellyn. Okay? People in the Middle Ages were not very nice. They even planned to kill their own brothers and fight against their fathers, as we've seen, if they wanted to push their own uh, claims along. And in 1274, they planned to assassinate Llewellyn, okay? and then David will get uh, the big prize. But Kind of quite late on, Llewellyn is made aware of this plan. I think there are things like bad weather, it all falls apart at the last minute. And uh, ultimately, David and um, the, the ruler from uh, when Gwen Winwin, Griffith, they have to flee to England, but Edward lets them stay there. He supports them, okay? He doesn't send them back, he gives them asylum in England. And they even attack some of. Uh, Llewellyn's lands from within England, which is not a good thing to do. You shouldn't do that uh, to your neighbouring king who's meant to be your vassal anyway. But so that's a, a one big problem. In addition, Llewellyn is planning to marry Eleanor, the daughter of Simon de Montfort, Eleanor de Montfort, okay? And she's meant to be on her way to marry him when she gets kind of kept in England, okay? She gets prevented from coming to Wales to marry her husband. So Llewellyn claims, you're keeping my naughty brother and his political ally in England, letting them attack my lands when they should be coming to me and I should be punishing them or whatever, and my future wife is not allowed to come, you're keeping their, her, Edward, and so, whether for that reason or just because he can't uh, manage it, he doesn't pay his tax to the King of England very regularly and stops doing it, and he starts refusing to pay homage to the King. Okay. So Edward feels annoyed. This guy's meant to be making homage to me and paying me money. He agreed at the Treaty of Montgomery with my father, 
meanwhile, Llewellyn's feeling annoyed because he says, you're keeping these rebels and so on, and you're not letting me have my wife. Okay? So there is a, obviously a, a growing um, uh, problem here. So eventually, because of the repeated refusals to pay homage and to pay tribute, Edward says, that's enough. I'm going in. I'm going to show this guy that he's not quite so powerful uh, as he thinks. So he launches an invasion in 1277, okay, and basically deprives uh, Llewellyn of... Um, almost all of his power, except in his core area in Gwynedd, okay, it's up here. So Llewellyn is left with direct power just in this green part of um, Gwynedd. He has no claim over the other people. His brother David is given some other part of Gwynedd, and then this is controlled by uh, the English uh, crown, and then we have the marcher lords and people who are now royal vassals of the king further down south. So it's a complete um, downturn for Llewellyn. Okay? He's now faced with a strong English king, not like during Henry's reign, and if, if the king wants to go in, he's pretty much within less than a year kind of sorted out. Uh, and this is the, what we call the Treaty of Aberconry uh, that makes this. Okay? So he's in a very bad position, and other people get power. He's still given the title Prince of Wales, but it doesn't mean very much now. He can't claim uh, power over a large area or overlordship in the way that he did. Okay. So that's the situation in 1277. And then the final problems emerge 1282. And it's still David at Griffith, which seems to be at least partly responsible. Many of the people in these areas, Welsh people in these areas here, including David in his little bit here and up here, people are increasingly feeling the English officials, the English representatives of the king, are being unfair to the Welsh and so on, taking wrong taxes and so forth. So they, there's a growing resentment against the, uh, the slightly stronger English presence and power and so on. And uh, a rebellion is launched in 1282. Initially, I think, organised by David and some other Welsh rulers, and Llewellyn may not have been involved at the start. They seem to have planned it, okay? And they, on, what is the date? 21st of March, they decide to attack a number of important uh, castles, including, oddly enough, the castle where I come from, my little village. It's not marked on this map. Harden, we have... Uh, a castle, an old medieval castle in my village, and that's attacked. Okay, it's controlled by the English because it's in this red area, but they attack Harden, they attack Flint Castle a bit further along, and a few others, and then the parallel raids are on castles down here. Okay, so this revolt suddenly opens up by Welsh people, including David, who had previously been supported by the English, and Llewellyn realises he better get involved, okay? He better kind of take control, uh, otherwise he may not uh, get what he wants. So then we have a revolt against the English in Wales, and once again, 
Edward says, okay, we're going in, boys, and he launches again, as he did a few years early. He has a three-pronged movement into different parts of Wales, and he has ships moving around the coast as well. And uh, the Welsh didn't learn their lesson, but the Edward is kind of obviously stronger than they are. And then within the year, okay, we have the defeat of the Welsh. And I get my dates right here. 11 of December, kind of by an accident or a trick, Llewellyn is defeated and killed in battle. Okay, so he's gone. Uh, a little bit later, June 1283, David is captured. Okay, and then about six months later, he's tried and executed uh, in a rather horrible way. And then pretty much within a month of that, the whole of the revolt collapses. Okay, so it falls apart less than a year. Now, there is not strong resistance. The main leaders of the Welsh revolt are either killed or captured and uh, all of this independent part of Wales is now directly uh, uh, potentially under um, Edward's control. Now I've got a couple of maps to show or we can try this one. Let's see which this one might be different. Okay. So Edward decides, enough is enough. These guys, these Welsh guys, are just causing trouble. When I'm not there, they, they're pretending or they're uh, under my power, but they keep resisting and so on. So from now on, all the bits of Wales which were independent were not controlled by the marcher lords, who are my vassals anyway, uh, is now going to become part of England. I'm going to incorporate it into England. Okay. So 1284 we have the statute of Hrothlan. Okay, established in this important English castle up there in North Wales. So he takes large part of what had been Gwynedd and incorporates it into England. Okay, he makes it effectively part of England, breaks it up into three counties or shires. Anglesey, where my mum comes from, Carnarvonshire, okay, based on the important town and soon to be castle of Carnarvon, and Merionethshire here, okay, we have Porton Castle at Harlech that we can mention. Meanwhile, some areas which had for a while also been kind of controlled in or organised the shires are also organised slightly independently, and we have Cardiganshire and Carnarvonshire uh, added to this pattern. So this is North Wales, and it's given its own justicia as a kind of governor for the king. And this is Royal South Wales, with these areas kind of tagged onto it, okay? And that has its own justicia as well, representing uh, um, uh, the, the, uh, the um, king's interests. The march, the areas, the white areas, are still, to a large extent, uh, controlled by English lords, okay, uh, that they disappear and become kind of administratively English, royal English later on. In these areas, they organise them more or less as English counties, so they're no longer organised on Welsh way. English law is established and so on, okay, so for all intents and purposes, this is now part of the Kingdom of England. So, within a few years, he's removed politically Welsh independence 
and he's incorporated a large part of Wales that was separate Wales into um, his own uh, organization. We have a couple of vague revolts, 1270, um, no, I'm saying 1287 and 1294 to 5, but they don't amount to very much. They don't change the situation in any significant way. To consolidate his position, Edward does a number of things. Most importantly, he builds a lot of castles. Okay. This is probably my favorite one. Okay. This is Carnarvon Castle. Uh, and I, when I was a little boy, I used to go here and run around on the tops you can go in and so on. Um, uh, and they have a number of other ones marked on, I think we can see them on this map here from Rhys Davies, the little um, uh, triangles. Some earlier castles had been built during the 1277 Troubles, okay, Frostland and others, okay, and some of them are rebuilt or reinforced. But particularly in the north, you see this kind of cycle of of castles around here uh, on the edges to control and consolidate uh, this uh, conquest of uh, Wales, as it's called. In addition, though they're not marked here, we see a series of towns being built or settlements expanded into towns and often with kind of English people settled in them, planted in them, some of them next to or part of these castles, some of them separate. Okay, so you have not only military consolidation and control, but also economic control of Wales through towns and so on, incorporating uh, Wales more and more into the English system. And we may as well, oops, that was a mistake. Oh, we can see a bigger version of Carnarvon Castle. There we go. Okay. Um, and. Uh, these days, of course, they're just tourist attractions, but uh, the, uh, they do represent this. In, they represent the strength and power of uh, the English kings uh, in, uh, in king in Wales. Okay, that's more or less what I want to do today. We'll have one hour. Uh, we've finished Edward quite quickly. Um, on Tuesday, when hopefully we'll have more people here. We will kind of do a, a final review of the course, looking at the kind of main trends and developments. And I shall try and, well, I have to give you back your draft essays so that you've got uh, a few weeks to, to work on them. So I'll give you some feedback then, written feedback and a little bit of spoken feedback as well. Okay? Tuesday is the last day of classes and it's our last class as well okay in the afternoon so it will be probably your last class this semester no i don't know has paul got anything is the tuesday one or no you're not yeah, yeah okay yeah then right okay but for the rest of you maybe it'll be the last class okay right so we finished our survey we brought ourselves down to round about 1300 okay uh, and i'll review the situation in britain kirka round about 1300 on uh, tuesday and we'll give the essays back Okay, right. Finish early for Father Christmas. I shall now go home and help cooking the turkey and so on. Uh, see you all next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, 
and have a great day.